Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the award-winning journalist and author Daniel Lavelle. Daniel spent much of his childhood in care, leaving age 19 and becoming homeless shortly afterwards. Diagnosed with ADHD at a very young age, his experience of living on the streets compounded his mental health problems. His personal insights, the links between homelessness and mental illness, are what make his writing in The Guardian so powerful and compelling. His new book is called Down and Out, Surviving the Homelessness Crisis, a shocking account of British society in decay that also manages to be warm, beautiful and funny. I was fascinated and privileged to talk to him about the book and his remarkable life. I hope you enjoy listening. Danny, welcome to The Reset. Thanks for having me, Sam. Nice one. Oh, it's a pleasure, mate. Um, well, you've had a uh, eventful life story um, uh, up until this point, and I'm keen to learn more about it. Um, how crucial to your sort of childhood and everything that's happened since was the diagnosis of ADHD when you were a kid? Um, I'd say, I mean, I'd say it set the tone for the rest of my life, so... Um, I was originally diagnosed in the early 90s, so I think around 92 or 3. And at that time, the condition wasn't well known. You were just seen as naughty boy syndrome. So back then, there weren't like support classes and schools, and there, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about it. So I, f- I found myself getting expelled from mainstream school when I was 6, um, and I was in trouble before that from the age of five. Um, I had such a pronounced case of ADHD that um, the doctor who diagnosed me in London said he'd never seen anything like it. When, because I don't know if you've ever been to a psychologist um, when you were younger, or I think he was a psychiatrist actually, but they get you to arrange sequences of pictures and into um, a logical narrative. Mm. But instead of doing that, I was climbing on his bookshelves. So... <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, I was off my head from the start, really. Um, 
And then, yeah, um, I got expelled from my first primary school in Greenfield in Greater Manchester in Saddleworth. And then I went to a special school. I got reintegrated to another primary school during that, got expelled from there. Um, and the straw that broke the camels back there was when I pushed a table over at the teacher and I think I whacked another lad who was teasing me. And uh, that story's been recycled over the years to me knocking out the teacher and throwing a table at the kids. And every time it was told to me when I was growing up, it got more and more dramatic. It weren't that bad, but um, I definitely deserved the expulsion. I was like, I was difficult to control. Um, and then, yeah, the, the condition disrupted my whole education. The worst part of it was I was medicated for a while. And according to my parents, the meds were working. But I, I, I got sent to a special school in Rossendale. It's called Rossendale School. I don't know if you, you, you might not be able to say that. I call it Dippy Dale in the book. Right. Um, and it's this special school um, on the Lancashire Moors. And it's under Peel Tower. And if you don't know, it's, I think it's, um, was it Robert Peel, the, the founder of the police force? Yeah. Um, so that just kind of adds to the punitive atmosphere of the place. It was mm. right in the middle of the Moors. It's basically a bar still, right? Um, but they emphasised discipline over everything else. So they put it into my head that I didn't need, need the medication. Mm. So I went off it. And then my behaviour spiralled so much kind of after that and adds to that the hot teenage hormones, which made it worse. And I ended up getting expelled from special school, age 14, and then I finished my education. Um, so, so yeah, I would say ADHD is... It's completely molded the trajectory of my, of my early life, certainly. And to this day, I'm not medicated. You know what I mean? I, when I should be, but I just I, I hesitate to to get a diagnosis again because the referral process takes so long. And mental health at the, at the moment, it takes like two years to get a proper appointment sometimes. So, what was the other condition that you were diagnosed with when you were a kid? Um. Oppositional defiant disorder, I think. So that's one I haven't heard of before. Is yeah, that, is that less common? Is that what? How does that manifest itself? It's just a it's just a medicalized term for rebellious, isn't it? Right. I didn't like being told what to do. You know. So and I, and unlike other kids who didn't like that, I I let adults know know about it. So I was quite mouthy and I wouldn't do what I was told. I was quite defiant. Um, and also when I was 13, I was having panic attacks and an anxiety disorder, um, which I've only just got medicated for last year during lockdown because it just, yeah, they just got out of control. Then. So now I'm on 150 milligrams of happy pills, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm actually grateful for. It has leveled everything out. So. so you were, I've heard you say before, right before that you were actually you, you, you're so naughty. You're such a naughty kid that you're expelled from a school for naughty kids. They specialised yeah. in dealing with naughty kids, and yet you were still yeah. too naughty for them. I think that's an achievement. Yeah. Like, so bad that the naughty school got rid of me. Couldn't contain you. That is impressive, mate. It's very impressive. I think so, yeah. What, what were the circumstances that led to you um, going into care? Well... Basically, just the family situation broke down. So um, 
there was a lot of violence at home, uh, which I, I don't think I can go into too much detail about, but sure. um, me and my mum and my brother um, spent a period of time in refuges when we were very young. Um, and then, you know, he had on my destructive education, my condition, and then my parents had their own uh, problems and just the whole situation broke down. So I ended up going from like a bucolic village on the Pennine border to a foster home in Longsight. And um, for your listeners who don't know about Longsight, it's, it's, uh, it was one of the major crime belts in Manchester. It was, it was, um, you know, kind of next to Moss side and, and rush home. And it was just like, it blew my mind basically like, the shops there had bulletproof plexiglass around and you'd order your groceries from a little box at the front. So it was just a completely different experience. Um, yeah. So like, mainly, yeah, breakdown of families why I went into care. I know. And what what is the what's the impact of, of um on reflection for you on your mental health? um of, of being in care you know do you do you connect that today to to things like you say like anxiety panic attacks and so forth i think so yeah i mean one of the main things that going into care do is it removes um a support network because you constantly very few people got one care placement and stay there they often just get bounced around um mm-hmm. especially if going care when they're teenagers because by that point i was a tear away so i wasn't well behaved so I got bounced around the care system. So then you just you don't you're not able to form friendships. Obviously, I was educated in the middle of the moor, so none of the kids around the areas in which I, I lived in care, uh, I didn't go to school with them. Mm. So yeah, it, it, the effect it has is it isolates you and just makes you it ostracizes you from the rest of society in a way. So like when I had to stand on my own two feet when I left care at 18, which I wasn't ready, I'm still a kid as far as I'm concerned, I had no one to lean on. Um, so that's that. So I think that contributed to the anxiety for sure because my panic attack started ratcheting up after I'd left the system when I started living on my own when I was 17. So And... Well, I'm really interested in, obviously, your book is about the issue of, of homelessness in this country, and I'm, I'm really interested in the mental health aspects of that Yeah, um, and whether, you know, to a large degree, our homelessness crisis is linked to a mental health crisis. But tell me about your experiences of homelessness and what led up to that. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, my route to the street, I, I suppose it was inevitable because when you look at the figures... I think it's something like 20% of care leavers um, end up homeless at some point. Uh, a, a, a massive proportion of homeless people have uh, mental illnesses and drug dependency issues. So for me, it was the same. Um, I managed to get into university because I, I was I was working with Oldham Council as a gardener and I did evening classes, uh, an access course, and I got to Manchester Met Um but what I did was I moved from Oldham to Tameside because um, I just wanted to get out of Oldham, you know. Um, but support from the vulnerable adults team, which I was, ha- which I had at the time, didn't follow me. Right. So the only support I had during that time at uni was uh, Scrumpy Jack and, uh, <laughs> and uh, Black Lager and stuff like that. So 
I just didn't fit in at uni because like class has always puzzled me, right? I, I don't feel working class and I don't feel middle class. I'm kind of in class limbo. Mm. So I kind of fit in with everyone and no one at the same time. So at uni, I just really struggled with people from posh backgrounds and that. Um, and also I struggled with the workload because even though I did an access course, it's not the same as finishing your GCSEs and going to A levels and having mm. all your friends supporting you and learning the system. So I was just like really screwed up. And then one of my mates died at the time. My grandma passed away. My mother um, was taken seriously ill with multiple organ failure. Um, other close family members were in trouble with the police and one went to a psychiatric ward. So all this was going off during those three years. So yeah. I was just treated further and further into myself. Um, I barely left the house, put on loads of weight, started drinking a lot. And I said, the only thing that saved me actually fr- from reaching the sharp end of homelessness, like proper entrenched rough sleeping, is that I've got quite a poor constitution and I've, and I've got an aversion to drugs. So I could get, I could binge drink, but the day after I'm wiped and I was like, oh, I'll never drink again and all that. So that right. saved me in a way from going to the, to the, to the bottom. But yeah, mental, mental illness. I think you can trace it back from six years old to when I eventually became homeless age 26. I think it, I think you can draw a straight line almost to that. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm interested in, in homelessness uh, and, and drinking. I mean, you're talking in the book about, you know, like white ciders, you know, um, what is it? What's, what's, the, what's the famous one? White Lightning. And white Lightning, yeah. White Shite, they call it, don't they? White Shite. Yeah, and yeah. this, this is, it was a big deal. And that very much is like, you know, a, a, a means of like numbing out the sort of pain and, and and trauma that you're going through. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, is that pretty much everyone on the streets is either using drugs or alcohol? I think at the sharp end. So when you're talking about homeless people, I think the vast majority of homeless people are like in temporary accommodation or sober yeah. service. But yeah, the, 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 the ones at the sharp end, so the ones that you pass on the way to work and with the polystyrene cup, yeah, they're, they'll be on drugs or drinking more, more than likely. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, and that's either because they had a problem before they hit the streets or because they developed one when they were on it. I mean, I've spoken to some rough sleepers who started their addiction when they're on the streets. And yeah, like you said, it was just to, you know, kill kill time. You know, mm. it's why it's why um, spice is so popular in prisons. They call that the bird killer because it mm. does kill, it does that, it kills time. So the last thing you want to do when you're, when you're sleeping rough, I, I suppose, is be aware of it for too long. Yeah. So, so yeah, so what I've, yeah, I think it plays a major role. I'd say most rough sleepers are on something or other. Yeah. So you felt that you avoided that sharp end by it not becoming like a daily habit. So what you had enough time and headspace, uh, uh, you know, uh, to be able to sort of address some of your issues in in more of a sober state. Yeah, because I, I just didn't have the constitution for it. You meet some people, they can they can drink loads and then just get up the next day and no problem. Yeah. But I, there's no chance I could do that. And I was scared of drugs. Um, mm. Even cannabis gave me a panic attack because it raised my heart rate. Mm. Um, so I didn't. So yeah, I got really lucky in that respect. Um, but honestly, if I'd had a better constitution, and I would, yeah, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you because I, I just wanted to blot it all out, you know. So. And and you write in your book about you know the the moment that you went for the your your longest spell 
of homelessness, you actually left of your own accord your last sort of uh, rented accommodation. You weren't evicted. No. But you could see it coming on the horizon. Is that is that right? No, I'm, I'm sure if I, just, if I was sensible, I could have just spoke to my landlord and arranged a, um, installments or something or, or reached out for, for housing support. I just wasn't in the frame of mind. I just was so paranoid. Um, so I just left. Just left. Um, I, wish I, I wish I understood my decisions back then, but all of them were irrational. Um, mm. So I was, like, I was in like something like two, about 1,500 pounds worth of arrears. So I just, yeah, I did think the writing was on the wall a little bit, but I think it could have been salvaged. Um, but yeah, I just left, um, stayed a few nights in the tent um, or, you know, over three weeks and then on my brother's sofa and friend's sofa until I eventually found the place in, at Emmaus, which is a um, homeless community. I don't know if you got that far in the book. Um, the second chapter is um, about uh, is charity broken, it's called, and um, it details my, the period of time I spent in an Emmaus charity, mm. uh, which is an, a working community for the homeless. So you do 40 hours work a week in exchange for bed and board, and they give you a small weekly allowance. And I did that on and off for 18 months. So two periods of nine months or so. Um, yeah. Sorry, I, I don't... Um, that's a loose end. I don't know where I was going with that. That's all right. That's fine. It's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, what did you... What was the turning point for you that you, you know, you managed... Uh, I think, was it eight months that you, you were without a, uh, without a home during this period 10 years ago? Um, so yeah, 2013, yeah, about eight months for the first period, and then I got sorted out briefly. Um, and then I spent another eight months homeless in St. Albans down south. Um, but in, but in between that, after I left the mayors, um, the working community, I um, I applied to housing options center. Mm. And I described it in the book, that was like an X factor for the destitute, you know, felt like mm. I was auditioning because apparently I weren't homeless enough. The woman said to me, you have to prove that you'd be any worse off than me if I was homeless. Those were exact words. I'll never forget them. Uh, and I just, I just flabbergasted by it, you know, like how, you know, if I'd rocked up with some missing teeth and pissed myself, would you have? that have satisfied the judges, you know what I mean? That's why I thought about it. So it's like there's an acceptance in the yeah. system that a certain amount of homelessness is inevitable and they just accept that. And and so it's no longer how can we make sure no one is homeless. It's about, right, how can we identify the most extreme cases and not uh, so we don't have to worry too much about the others? I'm it's guessing scary, so. that, isn't it? yeah. So if you tick a box or like if you've got a disability, I think they'll, they'll do something then because they don't want to get in trouble. Mm. So I think a lot of it's covering their own backs, but if they don't have to house you, they won't. Well, you, you know, if you're not from the area, then they won't house you, which directly discriminates against um, gypsy travelers and people fleeing domestic violence who don't have um, habitual residency anywhere. So yeah, there's not much help out there, especially if you're not clued up about, your rights and stuff. 
then they can just dismiss you out of hand. I mean, it's not that's not the correct case across the board. So I think if you're homeless in London, I think you've got a better chance than if you're homeless somewhere else in the country, because um, there's um, it's quite there's quite a lot of um, compassionate organisations in London. But even there, it's not perfect. You know. To what extent, in in your own personal case, do you think that mental health, you know, sort of drove you in? to the situation you found yourself in without a permanent home? Uh, and to what extent did did finding yourself homeless sort of exacerbate your, your mental health problems? Um, I think it played a massive role. I mean, also being a responsible played a part as well. Like I didn't do the right things. Um, but obviously if I was, if I was well, then maybe I wouldn't have made the silly decisions I made. And um Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, being homeless made my mental health worse for sure um, I just I didn't know where my life was going at that point mm. you know, just graduated uni and then straight away I'm homeless lost complete self-confidence yeah it's destroyed me in a lot of ways but um, and but can, you, can you so can you remember like when you, when you like going back to when you you know decided to leave your flat and not speak to your landlord in a way that you now realise you could have done. Was that just the result of, of of your of your mental health, the state you were at in your mind at the time? You just couldn't face dealing with it and it was just simpler to walk away. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I was so out of it at that point that, because I was living on my own and I was always scared of intruders and stuff, but I found myself at night looking in the cupboards, like there would be right. some sort of contortionist that ready to rob me or stab me or something. Yeah. And I would film myself doing this. It got that bad. And then to reassure myself, and I'd watch what I'd filmed. You know, it, I wasn't well at all, you know. So when I left, I, I think I, I think I was worried specifically about bailiffs coming. Yeah. And not them taking my stuff, but seeing the state of the place because it was it was just like bombsite, you know, clothes everywhere, unwashed clothes, unwashed plates, empty beer cans, you know. So what you felt like ashamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also say about your paranoia in the book about, you know, when you did go to apply for for um, for housing, your paranoia got the better of you because you wouldn't give them your uh, real name or details. That's right. Yeah, the first time I gave a false name, the wrong details. Don't know what I was thinking. So, yeah. That's what I, I try. I'm just as confused about that point in my life as anyone else would be. I don't understand my decisions. I look back at them and they, they were crazy. Um, that's the that's the point about me and mentally ill. You are irrational. Um, 
So I had I must have had a good reason at the time, but I can't remember now. You know, must, uh, I say, Danny. I mean, I look at uh, I, I, I hear what you've been through, and I've read what you've been through. But also, I'm talking to you today, and I've, I've read um, your book, and I've read several pieces that you've written in the Guardian, and. You know, not to blow smoke up your ass. These are beautifully written, intelligent pieces with real insight. Um, today, you seem like your life's really on track and you've got a real grip on on your thoughts and your analysis of homelessness and, and so forth. So yeah. what I'm fascinated by is, you know, 10 years ago does not seem like a long time to me. But no. I think of what I was doing 10 years ago, it, does, it feels like the blink of an eye. Yeah. So, so what changed? How how have you managed to turn your life around the way you have? Yeah. Oh well. First of all, thanks for saying all that. Um, really flattering, nice. I, well, I really mean it. I mean, your pieces are like really compelling, and you know they open. They're, they're compelling, but they open my eyes about the reality of of this issue in in our society. Oh, thanks, man. Um, well, so going back to that second housing options interview. Um, being told I wasn't homeless enough really annoyed me um, to such a point where, because they eventually housed me the next day, funnily enough, they must have realised the mistake they made, realised I did tick a box on their checklist and I was put in supported accommodation in Manchester. And there I was at a loose end every day. I was on the dole, uh, not for the first time in my life, but I was on the dole. And I just started writing because mm. I was so angry at it about that situation that I just wrote um, a blog. I started a blog and I wrote an article called Being Homeless. Where I wrote about my experiences there. And then funnily enough, that blog post informed an opinion piece I wrote while I was at Goldsmiths College studying journalism. And that won a Hugo Young Award at The Guardian. Right. So, so, so people ask me, how do you get into the industry? How do you change it? And I just think, well, um, living from messed up life, um, go to uni and win a competition. I don't know, it's all random, isn't it? Um, yeah, apart from the bit where you went to Goldsmiths University and uh, and studied journalism, I mean, that would have been a big step to where you've been a few years previously in, in, in a flat that you were embarrassed for, for even like you know, bailiffs to come around and see. Yeah, you know what I mean, it was, Sam? I wanted to get the story out there about Emmaus. Because yeah. in my opinion, a maze is a workhouse. So you you do 40 hours work per week, like I said, for yeah. a bed and board, a small allowance, but you have got no workers' rights protecting you from um, unfair dismissal, no tenancy rights, and you can get launched uh, from the community for being caught with a bottle of beer because you have a strict policy of abstinence. But there's guys there who've been there for 10 years, uh, companions they're called, mm. just adds to the creepy... <laughs> atmosphere it's like a cult I thought yeah um, but yeah I, I was because I was I was so incensed by that exploitation I wanted to get that story out there about mayors that in 21st century Britain the workout system is back and it's going on under everyone's nose wow like, there's like over 30 of these communities nationwide and they're all over Europe um, and to be fair to mayors they do help people like they're they've They've got lots of positive stories, but for every positive story, I reckon there's a negative one. Because, mm. like I said, pe- people um, are not like people, entrenched homeless people aren't capable of, of living there, but often they'll get through the initial screening process. But then it all unravels because they're obviously caught with drink or drugs. 
and then they're yeah. sent back to the street. So that that incensed me as well, thinking, hang on, these people are coming off the street or they went to the street because they've got these problems and then you're turfing them out again because they've fucked up. Yeah. What's that about? So there's 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 no concession to treat <laughs> to treating addiction in a no. in a sort of a sensible or sustainable way. There's a message of if you are an addict, if you have substance issues, you just have to find a way of giving that up immediately. If not, we oh, can't yeah. help you. Yeah. And it's it's like there were guys there who were former heroin addicts and they were on methadone, but they were they were doing what's it called titration and you come mm. down off it. Right. So, so they were rattling. So some yeah. days they couldn't work. But then, then they got penalised for that, not in any official way, but they were just treat. They were it, it just became snide. Yeah, the atmosphere became snide. Um, so yeah, you, you go into in a community like a maze, you can't get clean there. And then if you go to a normal hostel, for, um, they're full of drugs and drink. That these yeah. aren't ideal environments for people to get well or you know get their lives back together. And I've said this about charity in the book that I just think it's compromised from the start mm. if, if there's no homelessness there's no homeless charities so in a way it's bad for business to end um social ills like homelessness right um so that's why i argue if we want to solve problems like homelessness and and you'll never solve mental illness but get better treatment you've got to take the profit motive out of this you've got to take charities out of this it's it's in the interest of a public authority to solve social problems as fast as they can, so they can save money. A charity or a business, to, oh, let's keep let's let's have these strange policies, so we don't we know we're not going to help anyone, everyone, sorry, and then we can just tick along. And they celebrate expansion these charities and third sector third sector organisations, like in a way that would make Jacob Rees Mogg uncomfortable. You know? Right. Um, anyway, I'm I'm ranting now, but yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's a separate interview altogether, but I suppose, you know, we can read the book to see your conclusions. But yeah. I guess, you know, this the government needs to take responsibility. There is a housing crisis and that informs a public health crisis, really, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I've read a couple of pieces by you in which you talk about the way in which you sort of, uh, you know, the way in which you you've got your head straight. Um, uh, you wrote a beautiful piece about how the library was a real savior to you because it, you know, for a lot of homeless people, it's just a place to go and keep warm. Yeah. And, and yet you out of nothing else to do began reading and that opened your mind. Is I mean, I'm not sure what part of the timeline that comes in, but was that a precursor to you <coughs> going to goldsmiths? No, that, that was um, a while before that. So that, that would have been like, almost 10 years before um, right. I got um, evicted from this bed sit because I think the woman in charge was selling it. And then I was in a hostel, not a hotel, social service put me in a hotel over Christmas. Mm. And then they got me a flat, a council flat in Oldham. And I just, I couldn't afford the bills at that time. Um, it's like a lot of, it's, this, it's the situation that a lot of people are now, you've got to choose between um, eating and heating. So I just went to the library because it was the only place I could go for free, get some mm. warmth, you know. Um, yeah, and I just had nothing else to do, so I just started picking up books. I started reading about the Russian Revolution and the Second World War, and that's what inspired me interest in history, and that's, that's why I did a history degree, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. 
so in, so in a way being in that situation um benefited me right i got an education because you say in the piece that you know a, a lot of your problems you feel uh, both mental and your practical problems came from a, a lack of connection you said that at the beginning of our chat about a lack of a support network yeah uh, and uh, you know books were almost like a replacement for or, or a different form of human connection that's right yeah so yeah so so yeah so, so, so i can't remember how i put it but um, let, let me ask you, I mean, just you know, to understand how important human connection is and, and, and what an impact it has on you when, when, it's, when it's missing from your life. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, all I can say is that when it's not there, it, you, you suffer. I think it's important to, to, if you are suffering something, um, to talk to people about it and often they can provide a course correction and be the mm. voice of reason because that's the thing with mental illness. If it just snowballs unchecked, it's going to get worse and worse and worse to the point where you, you're broken. Um, but if you have a worry and you're able to talk to someone about it straight, we can get ironed out almost straight away. Yeah. You know, yeah. Through conversation. Um, so yeah, I think it's massively important. So what those books provided for me was, um, an interpretation of the world that and exposed me to views that I hadn't come across. And, you know, you read, you read about people in similar situations. So if you read like down and out in London and Paris, by all well, then you're coming across people almost hundred years ago who a similar outlook, um, you know, so yeah. Yeah. And, and um, uh, another piece that, that I really enjoyed was you writing about, the impact that awe can have. There's been studies oh, yeah. uh, by, by psychologists about like how experiencing awe, uh, like in nature, for example, can, yeah. re- can really help with happiness. I mean, these <laughs> science studies, I know they come out, there's, there's a different one every day, but you actually, you know, uh, tried this out. Um, what can you tell me about that? Well, the first thing is I did it completely wrong. So you're supposed to do like 15 minutes walk a day. Just right. in the area, and I just decided to go up um, <laughs> the Pennines on the Mars. So yeah. I was happy. I was more less awe and more like frustration at being so unfit. <laughs> uh, um, I think the whole point of it is this like yearning for presence that we all have now. Like mindfulness is a big thing, isn't it? So, mm. so I think it, I think it's about that. I think it's just about being in the present moment and trying to cut out all the traffic in your head. Um, so yeah, I, I can see the benefits of it but I didn't do it right. Um, <laughs> What's, the what? I'm doing a piece on fear. Oh, so, yeah. So the, um, Margie Kerr, she's a sociologist in America. She wrote a book called Scream. I don't know if you've read it. No. But, um, she advises experiencing fear in your life to, to yeah. like, give you a, you know, bring you to the present and, you know, um, help your well-being. So last week I went on roller coasters and into a horror house. I'm going to do a round of boxing on Friday. Right. So I'm just scare myself shitless to make myself happy. Scare myself uh, happy. You know. uh, what, what do you think? Do you, what, what do you think so far? Any any sense in it? Yeah, there's something to it, you know. Like I'm going on the roller coaster at the end of it, you're so relieved, but you're buzzing, so everything just comes into sharp focus. Yeah, you know? and you can't think of anything when you're that scared and excited. Not all worries go out of your mind, and then yeah. you. 
you, you, that buzz keeps up for a few days, to be, to be honest. So, and obviously you can't, you can replicate it that often. It's not like you can go to, on a roller coaster every week. But um, I think like, I think it like, like exercising, I think will create a similar feeling and, you know, just pushing yourself in any way, taking yourself out of your comfort zone, then you're not going to be worried, are you? You know what I mean? What do you do generally today to sort of keep yourself, keep your mental health in check um, and, and keep things on, on track? Do you have like routines or habits that you stick to? Yeah. Um, so I've got to be honest, um, for anyone like struggling, see your doctor because medication mm. does help. I know a lot of people put off from taking um, uh, antidepressants, but they, they do they work for me. Yeah. Um, so that's important. Um, I, I have, I, I do meditation. Right. Um, at least 20 minutes a day. And that, that helps a lot because what, what meditation gives you is an understanding of how emotions work and how they have a half-life. So if you, if you, if you practice meditation and then you notice anger or frustration or sadness building up, you, you recognize it as an energy uh, passing through your mind mm. and it has a half-life. It comes, it goes. And why people suffer um, is because it's all to do with the way you frame it. It's not the, it's not the emotion that makes you suffer. It's, it's how your mind latches onto it. And then you tell yourself a story where yeah. you just, sit back and watch the emotion pass. It's, it's just energy. It's about as significant as having a niche on your elbow. That's, yeah. That's all yeah. it means. It, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't define who you are in emotion. So I think what people do is they latch onto it and then get carried downstream with it. Yeah. And uh, you can obsess, can't you? I, I get yeah. that. I've tried to in recent years just learn how to ignore my own thoughts a bit. Exactly. So if a worrying thought comes into my head, it doesn't mean that, the worry is rooted in any truth or reality. So exactly. it, it floating by is exactly the sort of thing that I try to think of. I think, oh, look, here it comes. A little bit of worry. Wait for that to pass. Try to ignore it or distract myself. Exactly, yeah, because it's it's just the thought. Sorry, is that... I only it's my brother. Sorry. It's, That's it's, all right. We're nearly um, done. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, thoughts as well. I, I've learned to recognise negative thoughts now as, ju as, as just a thought, um, which led me to all sorts of um, questions about free will. Because like I've noticed that I don't really author my thoughts; they just appear and then disappear. Yeah. Or so how yeah. much am I really in control? So when I see something that annoys me or winds me up or something, I start having negative thoughts. I just you say, hang on, these, these don't belong to me. They'd, they've just occurred. I can just watch them and then watch them fuck off and then get on with it. Yeah, yeah. So. Fascinating. And life for you today is good. Obviously, you're writing. You have a book coming out. Um, and do you, you know, do you, do you have the stability in your life that you, you always lacked in the past? Uh, yeah, I, I'd say so at the moment. Um. But I've always got in the back of my mind that that things can just go can go wrong at any moment. Like, mm. you know, as easily as they can get better, they can get worse. So, um, but yeah, I think I've I'll, at least I've carved out um, a career now. Um, like I'm, like I, I can always follow my writing now. Yeah, 
Whereas before, I was like lost at sea a bit. So, well, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to me and be so honest. It's it's really fascinating, and and your book is too. It's a really interesting sort of investigation into this, you know, the problems that we have in society in, in, in terms of homelessness and so on. So I encourage people to go out and buy it. Um, Danny, thanks ever so much for joining me on The Reset. Thanks, Sam. Nice one. That was Daniel Lavelle, an inspirational bloke who's overcome so much in life to become a successful and talented writer. He's doing such an important job in bringing the issue of homelessness and mental health to life. The book is called Down and Out, Surviving the Homelessness Crisis. It's out now, and I'll add it to the Reset book list at bookshop.org. The Reset has been on a break recently while I finished my book, but now it's back, and if you like all the stuff I do about mental health, then why not subscribe at samdelaney.substack.com. You get this podcast, plus regular newsletters and articles sent to your inbox for free. Or, if you pay a fiver a month, you get early access to the podcast with no ads on and a load of extra content too. Either way, thanks for listening, gang. Until next time, be lucky, and don't let the dickheads get you down. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.